It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing Bureau Chief. And I'm here with my co-host, Alice Su, The Economist's senior China correspondent, based in Taipei. We talk a lot on Drum Tower about Taiwan as a frontline of potential war between America and China. This week, we want to talk about how China and Taiwan see each other. The truth is, it's as if the two sides live in different realities. And in China's version of reality, it's really simple. Taiwan is a part of China and almost everyone on the island feels Chinese. In China's story, the Taiwanese understand that they are so much smaller that resistance is futile, and that China could make Taiwan safe and prosperous. The problem for China's rulers is that with every passing year, fewer people on the island of Taiwan actually believe that version of reality. Except in one place, called Jinmen, It's a tiny group of islands that belongs to Taiwan, but is much closer to mainland China. And many of the people living there do think that resistance is futile. If everywhere in Taiwan were like Jinmen, China's ambitions would be easy to achieve. This week, we're looking at the view from Jinmen. And we're asking, what does this place reveal about China's plans for taking Taiwan? This is Drum Tower. From The Economist. Hi, Alice. How's your week been? What's been keeping you busy? Yeah, my week has been good. I feel like my entire schedule these days is just juggling between reporting, writing, and pet care. I was walking in the park, talking to Roger, our editor, on the phone, and and walking the dog at the same time. And my dog actually escaped from his harness and ran away. Run away, Gary! Yeah, I was like, oh my god. And then I just hung up on Roger. I was like, Roger, I'll call you back. I'll call you back. And then I spent maybe 15 to 20 minutes chasing my dog around the park, but I got him back. Oh, my goodness. All is well. (laughs) All is well. When I first moved to Beijing, I had this constant waking nightmare that the cats would run out the door of my apartment. Oh, The lift doors would be open. They would get in the lift, go downstairs. The lift doors would open and they'd be in like in Beijing. Oh, And I would never see them again. I know that's a complicated. It It seriously worried me for quite a long time. Well, I just saw one of your cats walk across the screen, so it's good to know that they're still there. Yeah, he has a bad habit of jumping across the keyboard and switching (laughs) everything off, so we have to hope he's going to stay out of the podcast. Loved though he is, but his paws, yeah, they can do damage. So David, I'm excited to tell you about this trip I recently took to Jinmen, this little group of islands we've been talking about that is so close to China that people there are even talking about building a bridge connecting it to the nearby Chinese city of Xiamen. I went there and I recorded you a voice note. So I'm standing here on the beach of Lieru Island or Little Jinmen Island. 
and I'm at one of the closest points to the city of Xiamen, right across the water. It's only a few kilometers. The Xiamen skyline is right there. It's filled with these high-rises, these huge office and apartment buildings, and the contrast between there and this side, this little island that's mostly small villages with a lot of cows and elderly people sitting at home, the contrast is really stark. Just now I was looking through a telescope looking across the way and I could actually see the Chinese people walking on the beach over there and I could also see this huge set of red characters in Chinese that said 一国两制统一中国, which is one country, two systems, unified China. And for a long time, this island, Dinmen, it was the front line of the Chinese Civil War. It was also a place where a lot of propaganda flew back and forth between the two sides. And even today, China no longer needs to send literal propaganda leaflets dropped through shells onto the island of Dinmen. I think just that skyline, just the development that people can watch and that they can see with their own eyes, that's already a strong enough message. That's such an interesting point about how the skyline of Xiamen is its own giant propaganda message. And it is such a contrast with the only time I've been on Jimen, which was 20, oh my goodness, 23 years ago, when I was in Taiwan to cover a presidential election campaign. Even in 2000, you know, the most frontline stuff had been dismantled, but there were still centuries and you couldn't swim on the beaches because there were landmines in the sand. It was really still quite a strange place. And people had very strong memories of how dangerous it had felt. But it was just beginning tourism. I went, they had like a naval base in a cliff that looked like a James Bond villain's there. I remember that was just open to tourists for the first time. Yeah, that's right, David. And these days when we talk about Taiwan, most people just think about this island that I'm on. But Taiwan's official name is the Republic of China. And originally, you know, there was this fiction that the government here still controlled all of mainland China, right? But in reality, what Taiwan encompasses now is this island, Taiwan, plus a few small groups of outlying islands. And one of those groups is Jinmen. And people there culturally are much closer to mainland China as well. They actually speak the same southern Fujianese dialect as people in Xiamen. And it's a different dialect from what's spoken here in Taiwan. So I spoke with Jessica Chen, Chen Ruzhen, who is the legislator representing Dinmen, and she told me about just how close the relationship is between Dinmen and southern Fujian. She said it was so close, it was like going to your kitchen. It's like go to your kitchen. Oh, yeah, it's that close. And what that shows you is that the carrot is better than the stick, right? Because when I was there in 2000, people were really anti-communist. And now it turns out that if you give them tourism and income and treat them nicely, they actually get much, much friendlier. Yeah, and it's interesting that because Dinmen is so close to Xiamen, you know, when you go there today, you can still see these giant broadcasting walls with these lines of speakers where they used to broadcast propaganda across the water, sending messages to their Chinese compatriots on the mainland and telling them that they should come over and enjoy freedom and democracy. Yeah. 
So what you're hearing there is Teresa Tang or Deng Lijun. She's a really famous pop singer who was very popular in, in Taiwan and in China in the 80s and the 90s. And she came to Dinmen and she sent a message basically saying, I hope that one day you can have freedom and democracy like we have here. And actually, in one of the military museums, I heard a broadcast that was being sent from the mainland the other way. And they were quite clever. They would get mothers from the villages where the nationalist soldiers were from. And they would be saying things like, oh, come home. We have prepared a meal for you for spring festival. You know, everybody is waiting for you. So there was this propaganda that was going across both sides of the water. And on the Xiamen side, they still have some of those disused speakers. It's now like a place to take a selfie. So it's become a kind of tourist thing on both sides. Yeah, exactly. So the reason I wanted to go to Dimen at this point was because I had heard some recent news. Two things happened. One was that a soldier who was stationed on an island that belongs to Dinmen had tried to swim across to the other side. And secondly, I had seen that some of the local representatives in Dinmen were issuing a call to make Dinmen a DMZ, a demilitarized zone. And they were saying, we want to demilitarize this place and we want no war. And I was curious to find out more about that. I wanted to know, how are you going to make that happen? You know, is this saying you want to surrender? You don't want to fight? That soldier, he made it, right? He ended up in the mainland. Yeah. And how is that good politics in a place like Jinmen to be an elected councillor and to be suggesting throwing all the Taiwanese troops off the island and making yourself defenseless against the mainland? A lot of that has to do with Dinmen's history. When I was there, I met this old man named Hong Minghua. He's 88 years old. And he was explaining to me how, for a lot of Dinmen people, their experience was not this idea of we are on the front line, we are fighting for democracy, we are fighting for a free China. For a lot of them, their experience was they were farmers, villagers, they were really poor. And then one day, a bunch of nationalist soldiers came. Suddenly, they became the front line. Suddenly, they were being shelled all the time. And they were dragged into this war that none of them had asked for. So what you hear there is Hong Minghua telling us about the different kinds of shelling that Dinmen people experienced. And he was basically explaining how all these soldiers came, mostly they came from the mainland, and then the Dinmen villagers had to help them. Everybody was put under a very strict curfew. They had to stay home from 6 p.m. and cover up all the lights. They couldn't go outside. They couldn't go to the beaches because suddenly they were this wartime garrison and they were on the front line, right? Um, but also the civilians had to be organized into these civil defense troops and teenagers starting from the age of 16. They would be given guns. They were forced to participate in this fight. It's unbelievable. I think it's like a million shells in total fell on this tiny island over the duration of the Cold War. And, you know, when I was there in 2000, one of the tourist places you'd go is this shop that made kitchen knives from old communist artillery shells. Actually, I've got one, so it's a little weird, but it's a very nice sharp knife. And I think maybe it's worth just kind of revisiting the history that made this place a pawn on a giant Cold War chessboard. In 1949, you have the end of the Chinese Civil War. So the communist forces under Chairman Mao Zedong, they win the war. And they kick the old regime that ran the whole of China into exile on the island where you are now, Taiwan. But of course, that exiled, defeated regime was backed by America. And Chairman Mao on the mainland 
was backed by the Soviet Union, and this was the beginning of the Cold War. So very soon you had Chairman Mao looking at that tiny island. Why do we not own that? Why do we not take that now? It's the first step of taking back the whole of Taiwan. This is Kimoi, just a speck on the map, only 45 square miles of land, but home to 45,000 free men whose right to live in peace was shattered. But of course you had superpowers on both sides and tens of thousands of troops on Jinmen, then known as Kemoi. And it was a big deal, even in American news reports about the Cold War battles. This man has been a farmer all his life. And though many of his neighbours have been maimed or killed, he continues to till his fields in spite of the dangers of being in the open. August 23rd is the date in 1958 on which the armed forces of the Republic of China on Taiwan turned the tide in the Battle of Kimoi against their Chinese communist invaders. Had the defenders of Kimoi succumbed to the invasion, the history of Taiwan in the past 30 years certainly would have been radically different. That stirring, I mean, almost propaganda, that news reporting, it reminds us that in the 1950s, this was the Berlin crisis, but in Asia, this was a place that people talked about, they knew about, because it was the front lines between communism, red China, and the free China that America was supporting on Taiwan. And because there was such fear of a kind of wave of communist dominoes falling in Asia if you didn't hold this front line, you had American generals recommending the use of nuclear weapons to bomb mainland China. And then American President Eisenhower decided that it was time to stop escalating this conflict and that America was not going to get involved in helping the regime on Taiwan take back the whole of China. And then, in fact, you had America basically offering to be the security provider. But that was really a constraint against the island of Taiwan, telling that they were not going to get to reinvade mainland China. Yeah. And then after that, actually, didn't the shelling change between the two sides, China and Jinmen continued to shell each other, but they had this agreement where they were taking turns, you know, shelling every other day. And a lot of the shells were only half filled with ammunition. The shells were just filled with propaganda leaflets that were being dropped on both sides. It was a dangerous theater. That's right. I mean, when I think about Jinmen and after having spent some time there, it just always strikes me how crazy it is that these huge geopolitical changes were happening all around this place, but the locals didn't necessarily want it or even understand it. You know, my own mom grew up in Jinmen and she always tells me stories about how she as a child would be asked to pick up all these propaganda leaflets on the ground and hand them in to her teacher, but she wasn't allowed to read them. And she just knew, okay, China is sending us propaganda. I don't know what it says, but you know, I just have to turn it in. And I think she even didn't really understand the scale of what was going on all around her. All the same, the people still living in Jinmen today, like Mr. Hong, the 88-year-old we talked to, a lot of them have this sense that they are the ones who paid the price for Taiwan to be stable and at peace and to develop the way that it has. And they feel that if there was no Jinmen back then, there would be no Taiwan now. And so you can understand why people on this island are really so incredibly sensitive about the idea of a fresh war. Now we're talking once again about, my goodness, could there be a war over Taiwan? But they've also got to worry about making their economic future work, right? Right, David. I mean, you know what is so striking about Jinmen is that it was once the front line of war, but in the last 20 years, it has completely turned around and it's become the place that is the friendliest to mainland China in all of Taiwan or in the ROC. So in 2001, 
a ferry opened that started allowing direct 30-minute trips from Jinmen to Xiamen and vice versa. There was a huge influx of mainland Chinese tourists. And slowly, the two sides got closer and closer. In 2018, Jinmen started piping in drinking water from the mainland. And the current county chief has even been talking about connecting the electric grids on the two sides. And when I was there, there weren't so many mainlanders because the connection had stopped during covid it was really striking to me because we would drive around and most of the Jinmen homes are still in these tiny villages with old Fujian style houses with those red curving roofs. But then once in a while, I would see this huge duty-free luxury shopping building with Gucci and Burberry inside. And the Jinmen people would say, oh, that's for the Luka, it's for the mainland tourists because they usually come on day trips and buy a bunch of luxury goods and then they go back. That's just amazing. I can tell you there were no Gucci or Burberry duty-free shops in 2000. But I think we need to be clear, right? China is not boosting the economy of tiny Jinmen as an act of charity. I don't suppose it's a coincidence that that ferry opened the year after the first truly free presidential election on Taiwan was won by a party that wants nothing to do with mainland China. This is about hearts and minds and politics. So if you can make a place like Jinmen completely dependent economically on the mainland and long for more and more connections with the mainland, whether it's tourists or water or electricity, that is exactly the message that rulers in Beijing think is good for Jinmen. But above all, they want to be heard in the island where you are, right, Alice, where the 24 million Taiwanese will see how good life can be if you just make friends with mainland China. Yeah, that's right, David. And on the island where I'm living, Taiwan, a lot of people are really aware of the Chinese government's tactics, its propaganda, its united front influence, and so on. But I wanted to see if it was any different in Jinmen. And one of the most interesting people I met there was a woman named Li Liangyun, who is actually mainland Chinese. She is from Anhui province, and she met a guy in Xiamen and decided to marry him. He was from Jinmen, and she made this big decision more than 10 years ago to follow him to Jinmen and change her citizenship and become part of Taiwan. She was telling me about how different it was for her, not only moving to a village in Jinmen, but also experiencing the democratic system for the first time. So basically, she's just talking about how they never had elections in China, but now they can actually vote in Jinmen. And she said it gives her a sense of participation where she has this vote. And, you know, she even called it a sacred right. <laughs> and she says, you know, she's gone back and told her friends in China and they think it's very interesting. <laughs> but at the same time, after telling us about this, she then said, but, you know, this democratic system, it's also really flawed. It's messy. I see that the government changes every few years in Taiwan and they seem to be very slow at getting things done. And then she said, actually, I feel that our system back in China is so much more efficient. So it's interesting here, she's giving this example about sorting your trash and recycling. And she said when she first came to Jinmen, she noticed that people do that here in Taiwan, and she had never encountered it before. But then a few years later, Xiamen started doing it too. And then she said, oh, wow, I noticed that, you know, once the Chinese government decided they wanted to do that, they did it so well. They mobilized everyone from top to bottom, including the neighborhood committees, which we've talked about on Drum Tower before. Um, but something interesting I did notice was she is 
still listening to that Chinese media, and obviously that influences the way she thinks. But also, Li Liangyun was telling me when she first came to Jinmen, people in China used to think that you know Taiwan was a better place to develop. Yes, I think that this country's living conditions will be better. 嗯, but now, less people are coming because everything in China is just so convenient. In fact, she would even like for her son to go to school in Xiamen rather than in Taiwan. And one very practical comparison she gave me was how five to six years ago she felt like she had much more spending power. She had a higher income than her brother on the mainland, but now her family members and friends all have higher wages than she does. And she said, "You know, here the prices are growing and the wages are not." And, you know, after all this discussion, at one point, I just asked her, You're talking so much about how great things are back home. Do you regret that you changed your citizenship all those years ago? And she said, You've hit the point. I do regret it. I once thought that I was moving to a more stable, better system. And now I'm thinking... Why did I even do that? You're right that if it's only about an economic contest, the argument has changed. When I started going to Taiwan in the late 90s, the cities were gleaming in a way that a lot of mainland cities were not. Whereas now Xiamen, that city right across the water from Jinmen, partly because it's a shop window for Chinese communism, they have invested a fortune. And Xiamen is a really beautiful, pretty city full of skyscrapers. And of course, if you're the Chinese Communist Party, that's the only consideration that you want people to have, that it's just about where can you have a better life? Where can you have more convenient government services? It's all about those practical government performance, because that's how the party gets its legitimacy. But as you know so well, Alice, because you're in Taiwan, there's another whole piece of this puzzle about identity and whether people feel Chinese or whether they feel Taiwanese. And of course, Li Liangyun, the woman you were just talking to, I guess she's a fascinating window on how the Chinese Communist Party would like everyone in Taiwan to make the decision about where it's a better place to live. But she's missing the whole identity piece of the puzzle because her identity is still absolutely a Chinese person who just was an economic migrant. And that's why she ends up on Jinmen. Yeah, you're totally right. And that identity piece of the puzzle is so interesting in Jinmen because a lot of Jinmen people don't identify as Taiwanese. But you can see that the younger generation of people in Jinmen are really starting to wrestle with that identity and are starting to change. So someone that I met who was really interesting was this other woman named Wang Ling, and she is 37 years old. She's from Jinmen, born and raised. And she told me when she first went to Taiwan, she went to university, she would at first have these arguments with her Taiwanese classmates because they would say, we're Taiwanese, we're not Chinese. And she would say, no, I am Chinese. I am Chinese because I'm from Jinmen and I speak Southern Fujianese dialect and my culture is exactly the same as the people right there in Xiamen. So why are you guys rejecting our Chinese cultural identity? 
Over the years, she spent about a decade living in Taiwan and then studying abroad in Beijing. She started to realize that she had mixed up culture with politics, and she wasn't distinguishing between the two. So in Taiwan, her experience was that she studied social psychology and she started paying attention to marginalized groups. And you know, in Taiwan, there is a really active civil society. There are all kinds of groups trying to work on labor rights, on LGBT rights, so on and so forth. So Wang Lin got into all of that. She started thinking, "Oh, I, I can make a difference in this society." And This society matters to me, and then she went to study abroad in Beijing, and she was really interested in knowing what was going on there. So she kind of went out of her way to do unusual things. She went to visit the petitioners' villages where people are asking for help from the government. She made friends with a lot of activists, but then she also saw how they just didn't really have any space to operate. And she tells me that she felt that there were a lot of smart, like-minded. People in Beijing that she met, and they were trying to do something to improve their society, but then they would be crushed. So finally, I asked her, you know, how do you identify now? Are you Chinese or Taiwanese? And she said, I'm Taiwanese. I'm Taiwanese, but it's not about. Culture. When I say I'm Taiwanese, it's more a matter of values. It's more about wanting to be in a society where I can have a voice. So in 2013, Wang Lin came back to Dinmen with her husband, who's actually a Beijinger, and she wanted to create a space for young people to come back and discuss social issues and try to spark some reflection about who they are and where they're going. Wang Ling felt that Dinmen was very different from Taiwan. In Taiwan, they had all this active civil society and spaces to discuss how they were going to change things. But in Dinmen, she felt it was a very static place where people were not really reflecting on their history, on what had happened to them, or thinking about how they might change their future. So she opened a tea shop. It was actually set on the premises of a local temple, and it became a gathering place for young, like-minded people to come and to discuss social issues like this big referendum on same-sex. Marriage that happened in Taiwan a few years ago, and once they had the space, she started to feel like, okay, now we have a sense of belonging. And of course, a tea house like that would stay open for about a day in Beijing before the police came round and warned everyone never to go there again. Certainly, it became a gathering place of people who wanted to talk about democracy. And I think that points to something so interesting about your interview with Wang Ling. You see that culture isn't enough. That once you realize that the values are different on the mainland. That starts to form a kind of Taiwanese identity, which is defined by being not China. And you know, you talked about them discussing LGBTQ rights. Of course, Taiwan is the only country in Asia with a gay marriage law, and I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons that it eventually passed after a pretty tough debate is because it's unimaginable that China would have one, right? So Taiwan is increasingly starting to define itself as the place that is progressive and open to the world. Rather than closed, scary, repressive communist China, and that's something that the communist rulers in Beijing—they don't have a good answer to those kind of forces in Taiwanese society. Yeah, you're totally right about that, David. But the sad thing is that Wang Ling and all her friends at the tea shop—they still felt very much a minority in Dinmen, which again shows how Dinmen is so different from Taiwan. She told me this story about how one time she was at a film screening talking to a high schooler about democracy and about the future, and then she got interrupted by an older man standing nearby. That old man later just turned around and said, "You young people, just be quiet. 
闭嘴就好了，就是不要太多意见。You young people need to shut up and keep your heads down. You keep talking about independence. What you're gonna get is a blockade, and we're gonna get cut off. But if you just be quiet and be good and stop talking, we can still get things that we want. And look, we don't live on Jinmen. We don't know what it would be like to be blockaded by communist China and suddenly find ourselves kind of you know shelled again. But it does point to a paradox of the Chinese offer to Taiwan, right? Which is, we can be friends. We are blood brothers. We are all one family. Let us make you rich and prosperous. And if you don't, we might blockade you, invade you, and maybe if we have to kill you. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was kind of illuminating to hear that story because it speaks to how a lot of older people in Jinmen just think it's naive and it's idealistic for the young people in this tiny, tiny place to be dreaming about one day, you know, they can determine their own future. And maybe also Wang Ling suggested the older people they still remember what war is like, so they're afraid of it. But also they're so fixated on avoiding war. They don't ask enough questions, she says, about what peace would mean. And she told me, you know, I'm worried that all day we're just saying no war, no war. But what is the cost of peace? Does peace mean we give up our freedoms? Does it mean we can just connect up with China and become just like them? What would that mean? And she said this thing to me that a lot of Jinmen politicians are saying we want to connect with China and get. Economic benefits for Jinmen, and that's good for us. And Taiwan is not letting us do that. But if we could, we would do it. So basically, Huang Ling is saying she thinks it's really idealistic to think that connection with China will not affect Jinmen's future. And she says people here are talking very big, like, "Oh yeah, we'll connect with China. We'll do good for Jinmen." But in reality, she knows when the Jinmen politicians are talking to China, they're acting like liars. Obedient children who say yes to whatever China wants, and it's that power imbalance that's really disturbing to her. And she said this thing about, "I'm not against exchange, and I have many friends in Xiamen and Beijing, and exchange is good, and it would be great, especially if we could exchange as equal neighbors. But I know that that other neighbor doesn't see me as a neighbor; they see me as part of them." And we have to take seriously the fact that they would rather not be in a terrible, devastating war, and. They are very small, and they can gain from being next to mainland China. But I think one of the other things we heard in that clip that was really revealing was where she said that a lot of her neighbours on the island they say that actually the problem is the current government of Taiwan, run by President Tsai Ing-wen, doesn't have the ability to talk to the other side. And we need to be clear: what is going on here is there are two large political parties in Taiwan. One of them is much friendlier to China than the other, and so whenever the Non-friendly party is in power, which is what you have now. It's in the mainland China's interest to find anyone it can on Taiwan and say, "Look how bad relations are. Look how much better they could be if you just voted for the party that we prefer." So, China is basically trying to play interference in Taiwan's democracy, and it has a favoured party that isn't in charge on the island of Taiwan but does dominate politics in Jinmen. So, we need to respect their desire not to be killed in a war. How could we not? But this is also China playing politics with Jinmen and Taiwan. That's right. And in a moment, we'll talk about a policy that some local Jinmen politicians have proposed, but that China would really love, which is to make all the Taiwanese soldiers leave Jinmen and to stop defending those islands at all. To read all our coverage about China, Taiwan, and so many other global issues, we would love you to subscribe to the Economist. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. If you're not a subscriber, then we have a free 30-day 
digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer to find out more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we've just been talking about Jinmen. We've gone through its history. We've talked about its present. And now we want to talk about Jinmen's future. And of course, the worst case scenario that everyone wants to avoid is if there is a war. Alice, you're right. So military strategists do actually think about whether Jinmen could be the first place to get attacked if there was a military conflict over Taiwan. And they have two main scenarios you hear about. One is that there's some sort of attack on Jinmen to test the Americans and see if they will come to Taiwan's aid. And the other scenario you hear about is an all-out invasion of Jinmen to take the island. The counter-argument to that, though, is that Jinmen is already the most pro-China place under Taiwan's control. So why would you destroy it when it is such a useful symbol of cross-straits brotherhood? Yeah, that's right, David. I actually heard a lot of people giving a similar argument in Jinmen where they were saying, we're not going to be attacked by China because we're so friendly with them. And if we're friendly with them, they won't hurt us. And again, this brings us back to the big difference between Jinmen and Taiwan, where in Taiwan over the last few years, China has been escalating the number of incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. It's been sending more fighter jets flying around. And the more hostility China exerts on Taiwan, the more Taiwanese people tend to respond with resistance. In Jinmen, there's a lot more fatalism. In part, it's because they are so close to the mainland. It is unrealistic to think that they could ever really defend themselves, given there are only about 3,000 soldiers there. But some of the politicians in Jinmen are actually proud of this kind of fatalism, if you will. And in fact, they are pushing a peace plan that is premised on not fighting at all. So I spoke to Chen Yanghu. He's one of the Jinmen County councillors who recently proposed demilitarizing Jinmen. And I asked him to explain what that would entail. And he explained to me that demilitarization basically means disarming or withdrawing all of the remaining 3,000 soldiers to show China that Jinmen has no defenses. He said, we will be shou wu cun tie, like we will have nothing. And, and in that way, we don't pose any threat. And if we don't pose any threat, then they won't attack us. And he said to me, you know, if China wants to have a war with Taiwan, they're going to send soldiers out from Xiamen. And at that point, they will look at us. And if they see that we have weapons here, then we become a thorn in their side. So let's just remove the thorn. Look, it's a democracy and people get to vote for what matters to them. And Jinmen votes overwhelmingly for the conservative nationalist Kuomintang party, which favours closer ties with China. Is that unanimous on the island, though? 
So I met another Dinmen County councillor named Dong Sunbao, who opposes the demilitarization plan. And he was telling me, of course, we all want peace. That's perfectly reasonable. And we all agree that we don't want to have a war. But if you understand even our own history, then you know that just because you say, I don't want war doesn't mean that war will not come to you. And he said, you know, we small islands, we don't have the decision power. We can't just say we, we don't want it and then it won't happen. And he said, instead, what we should be doing is holding on to our values and we should be preparing to defend ourselves in case it does come. But at the same time, he told me how frustrating it was to be in Dinmen because he felt just very much stuck in between. And he said, you know, it's just absurd. You know, how do we get out of the situation? We have our democratic values and our freedoms, but we are geographically stuck right here and nothing I do can change that. I can't move this island any closer to Taiwan. And actually, he made this comparison that I thought was very striking. He said Dinmen is trapped between Taiwan and China, just like Taiwan is trapped between China and America. Look, we have to have sympathy for someone who would like to pick their island up and move it somewhere safer. But I think that there are people in Taiwan, right, Alice, who would push back the idea that Taiwan is just a pawn in some game between the US and China, and that the only reason that America might defend Taiwan is because they want to hold China down, which is absolutely the charge of the Chinese rulers in Beijing, because you're in a democracy. Most people in Taiwan do not want to be ruled by Beijing. They've seen what happened in Hong Kong. They've seen how freedoms were crushed, and they don't want that fate. And they hear the leader in China, where I am, Xi Jinping, talking about that crushing of Taiwan's democracy and identity as a question of historical inevitability, as if these kind of giant forces are just going to crush Taiwan, whether it's people like it or not. He always makes the point that he'd rather do this peacefully, but he reserves the right to use military force. Yeah, and that's so interesting. You know, it's like in Dinmen, people are always talking about peace. But then when Xi Jinping talks about peace, he's using it as a precondition for reunification. And in many ways, Dinmen is a model for the Communist Party's vision of how a peaceful reunification could be achieved. So if you remember the legislator Jessica Chen, Chen Ryuzhen, that we met at the beginning of this episode, she's the one who talked about how Dinmen is so close to China that it's like going to your kitchen. She actually told me something about how Dinmen is a model. She says China doesn't have to fight or invade Dinmen. In fact, it's more useful if they develop Dinmen and they show Taiwan, look, look how good it is to be close to us. Your economy will be good. We will send tourists. We will build a bridge. And then she was a little bit resentful where she suggested that China wants to help us. They want to develop. But Taiwan is the one that's not willing. At the same time, she admits that this is propaganda and this is a form of messaging coming from mainland China. 
Jinmen is illustrates why it's so good to just be at peace. And then the unspoken part is be at peace and eventually unify. Kimmer is a model for them. Be friend with us, see? Alice, do you think it would be dangerous for China to imagine that Jinmen is a model? Because I think you could turn it around and say, look, Jinmen, of course they're fatalistic. Of course they would like to have peace because they are, whatever it is, three kilometers from the mainland coast. And that makes them an accident of history and geography. It's a question about what people value. And we have to respect the fact that different people value different things. Some want to have a good economy, a good salary, and that's all they care about. Some really value the chance to open a little tea house and have other young people come around and talk about the social issues that really matter to them. And I guess, to be really brutal, if Jinmen and the rest of Taiwan came under mainland rule and it was anything like the Hong Kong that we see now, that tea house might get closed down because that's not what the Chinese government would allow and they would have the final say. So I guess my question to you, Alice, as we end is, would most Taiwanese like to live the same way as people on Jinmen seem happy to live as a kind of tourist stop? I mean, I don't think so. And and I think what's really interesting is we're seeing the messaging coming from China change. I think in the past, maybe from the early 2000s to when Xi Jinping came into power, there was a period where China was really appealing to a lot of people in Taiwan. And that messaging, kind of the same messaging that is going towards Dinmen, you know, be rich and be part of this big superpower that did draw a lot of Taiwanese people. But in recent years, and especially in the last year, as I've been here in Taiwan talking to people, they say that that economic carrot strategy of drawing Taiwan in has already failed. Most Taiwanese people see that. They value their democratic system and they see what happened to Hong Kong and they see Xi Jinping's China. They see the lack of freedoms. They see that people don't have agency. They have rejected that. But now I think about Jinmen and I think there are two sides to the message. One side is join with us and you will prosper. And the other side is beware of war. And I think that China is now leaning on that side of the message, the coercive part, the intimidating part. They're now applying that same message to Taiwan. We have yet to see how Taiwanese people will respond to that. I think right now is a moment when Taiwanese society is figuring it out. And there are presidential elections approaching next year, and the two parties' campaigns are very different. You know, like one party is saying, we want to assert our sovereignty, we care about our values, we care about our democracy. And the other party is saying, we need to be friendlier with China or else they will attack us. So keep your head down and we can still get things that we want. That's essentially the other message. And Taiwanese voters are going to need to make a decision on which path they want to take. If there's anything you'd like to tell us about this episode or any other, then you can email us at drum at economist.com. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Bram produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Lee Lin, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.